Kara. Hey, Chris. How are you doing? Good t-shirt. Oh, yeah. So we have uh, Mark Shellhammer on campus uh, yesterday and today, who is a doctor at Johns Hopkins who worked for NASA. Sweet. <laughs> and anyway, so the t-shirt is the Rosalind Franklin, the new um, like rover type thing. Cool. Yeah. Anyway, so I've been wearing space-themed shirts the past two days. Right on. But that's Free? also why I'm not feeling well because we all went to dinner last night and I got a touch of food poisoning. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. Or too much sake? No, I had one drink. One drink. And though I am a lightweight when it comes to alcohol, I think the food is to blame. <laughs> In this case, something. Something. Anyway, so today is going to be another installment of our academic series. So we have Dr. Valerie Young coming on today uh, to talk to us about imposter syndrome. She wrote the book, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from the Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. Yeah, and I, the reason I was tweeting about it, one, because it's so tweetable, right? She Very concludes tweetable. her chapters with basically take home points and what you can do, which is really what this academics is about, mm -hmm. but also because they're just popping out at me as extraordinarily relevant nuglets. Yeah. And I know imposter syndrome is an insidious and pervasive problem. She wrote this book, what I find interesting, she wrote this book primarily for women, but as she says in her introductory chapter, it can be useful for anyone. Mm -hmm. I'm finding myself in both the caricatures of the men and the women, frankly. Yeah, and um, it's one of these, so I think, I love how she just starts the book with the sentence, countless books promise to reveal the secrets of success. This is not one of them. You are already successful, you just don't own it. Like, I actually stopped after reading that sentence and it just made me feel so much better about everything because I'm sure, like me, Chris, you probably suffer from some degree of imposter syndrome. Well, I was sitting in a meeting yesterday with an associate dean of academic affairs in the provost's office, which I consider like, like the pedestal on campus. You know, you go mm -hmm. up the steps into this building and this is where sausage is made. This is, what's that song from Hamilton, The Room Where It Happens? This oh, is the, yeah. These are the rooms where it happened, and I'm in one, and I'm, I'm there, I'm talking, and I'm talking to someone about starting a public engagement program. Anyway, I was really excited about that. But my point is, they're talking to me as though, like, oh, Chris, you've done all this before, so you know how this works, and I want to look behind me for this Chris they're talking to, going like, wait, I thought I was coming here to sort of supplicate myself because you let me in the door, and you're <laughs> acting like I belong here. And I'm, um, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm almost 50, damn it. Like, it's about time I belong someplace. Yeah, I mean, I have the fear, and especially now starting a new position, that at any moment they're going to break down my door and drag me out of this place because I clearly do not belong here. And they went through some, like, mental break in the process of firing me. That's, that's kind of how I live my day to day. Yeah, I do know that about you. <laughs> you you get those text messages of Chris, <laughs> imposter syndrome. Exactly. And right on time is Valerie Young. Hello. Hello, Hello Dr. Kara. Young. Hi, Kara, and that would make you Christopher. That makes me Christopher. Nice to meet okay. you. Nice to meet uh, you. 
So first of all, thank you so, so, so much for taking time out to talk about this. Sure. Um, we really appreciate you being so generous with your time. And secondly, both Chris and I, I've, I've gone through most of your book at this point, and then Chris has been perusing. We're feeling um, like we are not deserving enough to have you on our podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> We're having imposter syndrome about this actually right now, but it resonated with both of us very, very strongly. And uh, Chris was kind of pre-tweeting this interview because you have such wonderful, even though it's written, you have very wonderful sound bites that are very succinct and give people wonderful advice in easy to remember ways. It's fantastic. Oh, good, good. I'm glad to hear that. You know, I, I'm going to say up front, I hate the title and I'm happy to talk to your audience about why I hate the title. <laughs> Lots of reasons and I didn't want that title. But how was it for you um, as, as a man reading it? Were there parts that were more or less useful? Well, I was just telling Kara that I related both to what is described of as women's and men's perspective. I relate to both being the person who lets things roll off of me and also, as I was just telling Kara, showing up to meetings thinking I'm I've been let in the back door and and then being spoken to as though I am the expert in the room and have to look around and remember my age that actually I'm I'm old enough to be here I've done the things to be here and right. I've earned it. So yeah, yeah it's absolutely it's resonant. So the way I'd like to start all of this is kind of the origin of I guess the revelation of imposter syndrome. You talk about it very early on in the book that doctors Pauline Rose, Clance, and Suzanne Imes were yeah. the ones who originally wrote about it. And I was wondering yeah. if you could just kind of take us through very briefly what they talked about and how they kind of even came to study it. Yeah, uh, it's actually known as the imposter phenomenon. It got popularly referred to as the imposter syndrome out there in the world, but it's not actually a diagnosable, you know, psychological medical syndrome of any sort. And the, the term was kind of co-named by Dr. Pauline Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes. Uh, Clance was a psychologist at Georgia State, I believe, and, and Suzanne Imes was a psychologist in private practice. And apparently they just kept seeing this trend over and over with, you know, it was clients or students kind of being dismissive of accomplishments, the sense that I'm fooling people, and this kind of core belief, you know, that I'm going to be found out. And so they decided to, to study it. Um, gosh, and I, I apologize. I don't remember how many. They looked specifically at women. Mm -hmm. So they kind of looked at, you know, a, a subset of women, students uh, especially, I believe graduate students, and just found this kind of pervasive pattern kind of across the board. So they're the ones who named it. They put out a paper called The Imposter Phenomenon Amongst High-Achieving Women, um, you know, kind of uh, counseling interventions, you know, kind of approach to the topic. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, in 78. I learned about it probably a couple of years later, sitting in a graduate seminar. Uh, I was in a doctoral, actually, master's doctoral program at UMass Amherst. And somebody brought in this paper describing this finding. Hey, check this out, everybody. <laughs> There's people who have this feeling and has this name. And I just sat there, you know, nodding my head like a bobblehead doll and going, oh, my God, that's me. Mm -hmm. And then I looked around the room and all the other graduate students were nodding their head, which was, you know, shocking to me. Because, I mean, if you look at your colleagues, you think, well, how could they possibly feel this way? Um, so I tell the story that we, we get into a little imposter support group. We started meeting after class, talking about being intellectual frauds, how we're fooling all of our professors. And, and But around week three or four, I started this nagging sense that even though the other students were all saying they were imposters. Like, I knew I was the only real 
super impossible. <laughs> so I changed my whole dissertation topic. I had been doing what at the time was known as white on white racism awareness training, white groups talking about white racism, like a men's group around sexism, but for white folks. Uh, and I changed my whole focus and decided to look more broadly. I did not study imposter phenomenon. It was not like well studied at the time. I more looked at what are the internal barriers that would lead someone to have imposter feelings. So that was my research. I want to understand why do so many people, um, you know, what's going on here basically was the question that I that I asked. So um, I studied that, but Clance and I determined very quickly, and we could talk about what I call the gender thing. If you like. But they, they determined very, you know, pretty quickly after their first study came out that there are also a lot of men who have these feelings as well. So, I mean, that actually leads right into the, to the next question I have, is that you are very, very clear in your book, and you can talk about this with the title and why you hate the title along with this, that not just women suffer from imposter syndrome, that men, people of color, and members of the LGBT community do as well. Could you please talk about how it basically crosses all demographic lines, and though it, it also might affect some groups more than others, and maybe dig into a little bit of that too? Sure, absolutely. And there's a number of, you know, sources of imposter feelings. I mean, the one that you're bringing up, we could talk about other ones later, has to do with kind of social group membership, if you will. So again, a lot of men who have these feelings, I, I spoke at a law firm recently and I got an email afterwards from a guy who said, you know, I am the director of marketing at a billion dollar international law firm and I feel like an imposter because I don't have a law degree because he's in charge of marketing. You know, I think a lot of, especially young millennial men are much more comfortable talking about imposter syndrome, you know, show up and talk very freely about all the different reasons they have imposter feelings as well. From a social perspective, though, I think, you know, one of the things, I think there's a real intersection between imposter syndrome and diversity and inclusion in two ways. Number one is that a sense of belonging fosters confidence. So when you choose a major, for example, in college, or you walk into a classroom or a workplace or a conference or the executive level in any organization, the more people who look, or if perhaps, let's say, say English is not your first language, the more people who sound like you, just instinctively, the more confident you feel, right? Conversely, the fewer people who look or sound like you, for many people, it can and does impact how confident they feel. And that's especially true for any group for whom there are stereotypes about uh, competence or intellect. Hmm. So, for example, when I speak at universities and I speak to a lot of graduate students, I would say the largest group of people who show up are international students. Hmm. I mean, which makes sense, right? They've got the same pressures everyone else has, but they're doing it in another culture and perhaps in a second language. And even, you know, I've talked to many people who've lived and worked in the U.S. for, you know, 20 years, but they still have that insecurity uh, about language or in-jokes or whatever, just that little way they might feel a little underestimated in some situations. Certainly, race clearly comes into play. There's not a lot of people who, who look like you. You know, gender in certain fields and in certain levels in organizations uh, comes into play. But also, you know, first-generation uh, professionals, first-generation students are also uh, susceptible. When I was at UMass studying for my doctorate, my mother was also working there as a second-shift custodian. Hmm. So when I speak on campuses, sometimes I speak to administrators and staff 
who mm -hmm. I refer to as the four stepchildren on campus. Um, and I tell them, you know, I come from an academic family. My aunt was a janitor. My uncle Buddy was a janitor. You know, my, my, my other aunt was a secretary. So even Sonia Sotomayor, right, when she came out of a poor community in the Bronx, when she got into Princeton, she said she felt like she was visiting an alien land. Mm. that she kept waiting for someone to tap her on the shoulder and say, you, you don't belong here. Everybody can identify on some level. You know, I'll ask my audiences, how many of you have ever been the youngest person mm. in a group and felt like you were being underestimated based on age? You know, and people, everybody, I, I used to remember that, how that felt a long time ago. You know, and then on the flip side, you know, some people might be by far the oldest person mm. and they feel kind of underestimated. When I ask that question to Facebook employees, the 30-year-olds raise their hand, just feeling like, you know, because they're older, they're seen as like, well, what do you know? You're 35, <laughs> right? But, but why, these, why these things matter is that um, there's a concept that you or your listeners, that they may be familiar with. It's called stereotype threat. Oh. Uh, Claude Steele, uh, who was at Princeton and then in later years at Stanford, uh, massive amounts of research, him and, and, and Aronson, on what's called stereotype threat. And what they found was, unconsciously, the fear of confirming a negative, or even a positive, quote-unquote, stereotype can impact performance. Mm. And the more accomplished you were, the bigger the effect was. So just a few quick examples. They would give students a, a math test. Just having a group check off gender before they took the, the test, having them check off gender unconsciously reminded them, you know, the women of, oh, I can't do math, and their scores went down. Wow. When they added a box for race, the scores of the Asian American women went up, because that subtly reminded them of the so-called positive stereotype. Telling men, we're testing you on complex uh, informational processing versus social sensitivity, mm -hmm. exact same test, they perform much better when they thought they were being tested on complex informational processing. And they, and they have comparable studies around race, you know, the, the test administrator in the front of the room, if they were African-American, black students did better. If the test administrator was white, they did worse. So the reason why this matters is because stereotypes can also impact not only how people perceive us and therefore our experience, but also how we perform as well. And that, that can contribute to imposter syndrome. Hmm. It's a long it's answer. Just like... <laughs> no, no, you're blowing my mind. I, mean, I observed this in myself. I wouldn't have thought, you know, we all think, oh, we're sophisticated people. We don't buy into stereotypes, right? I was speaking at a very large tech conference in San Francisco, and I had to go to the help desk for something with their app on my laptop. And I was very aware of being clearly one of the older people at this conference. And the young man was helping me. And he's like, oh, well, type in this email address. And I'm looking at my keyboard, and I can't find the at symbol. <laughs> I know where the at symbol is. Right? I was there when the at symbol was invented, right? I had been an online business since 1995, but it, like, got in my head, and I kind of temporarily, like, oh, my God, where's the at symbol? You know, this old buddy-duddy, non-techie person. <laughs> and I was, that was an aha moment. So one thing you talk about imposter syndrome leading to is very – high personal standards for Absolutely. performance, unsustainably high personal standards for performance. I know I do this to myself. I know Chris does this to himself and I see graduate students doing it all the time. Yep. And even worse, I will see mentors encouraging that kind of behavior. Yeah. Um, and so in your book, you talk about right-sizing your unsustainably high 
performance expectations. And I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit and why it's so important. Uh, yeah, and, and it's hugely important. And I would say it's not that imposter syndrome causes those standards, it's that we have those standards and that makes us feel like an imposter. Because no one can consistently hit the bar that we have set for us, no human on the planet could. Mm-hmm. So in my book, I talk about kind of five competence types. Let me be clear, this is like very unscientific. Uh, I'm not a psychologist, which I think serves me and my hopefully readers and audiences well, because I try not to over-psychologize the topic. Mm-hmm. You know, I come from a kind of an adult learning perspective. So I started years ago putting interactive workshops together and I would have people get in groups and come up with the unsustainable, like the unhealthy imposter rule book. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, if I was really intelligent, capable, competent, qualified, I should, or I'd never, or I'd always, you know, and even if we intellectualize these rules, it's a part of us that buys in. So like the graduate student at Stanford, his rule was, or not so much, well, he said, I feel like I should already know what I came here to learn, mm. which of course is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. That's why it's so powerful in a group to hear other people come up with these rules. You know, I never make a mistake. I never, I never be confused. I feel confident 24 seven because in those moments where we miss that mark and here's the thing, we can hit it sometimes. Mm-hmm. We can all hit it sometimes. And that's when we think we should be able to hit it 24 seven. Mm. So kind of getting back to the exercise. So I get people in groups and I started collecting the flip charts over the years. And just from what they were saying and what they were putting on the flip charts, I just noticed patterns. I noticed that even though we all distort what it means to be competent, we don't distort it the same way. One person I refer to as the perfectionist. So for them, you know, the only thing that's acceptable is 100%. Like 99 out of 100 would feel like failure. Making a presentation and forgetting to make some minor point, they will beat themselves up endlessly. And at the core of all these is some shame, right? So that's going to evoke shame. That's going to feel like failure. Then there's the person I describe as the expert. And you're going to see that a lot at the university who feels like if I really, you know, belong here, is intelligent, et cetera, I would know everything. I know 150%, which especially if you're a graduate student, you know, there's like this endless pursuit of the end of knowledge, right? Like you're waiting, you know, one more book to read, one more experiment to run, one more class to take, one more degree to get, like waiting to wake up one day. Like now I'm an expert. So failure and shame for that person is going to be, you know, your, your advisor, faculty asks you a question and God forbid you don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. Or people are sitting around, I mean, universities, people use very large words they don't need to use. Like, just put it in plain English. Like, what the hell are you talking about, right? I talk about this all the time, actually. You sit there and like, hmm, hmm. You know, I mean, I spent a long time with graduate students. Like, yeah, yeah, what the hell are they talking about? Uh, but we don't want to ask, right? Because that would be embarrassing. Then there's the natural genius. And that's the person who got into his or her head that if I was really intelligent, capable, competent, this wouldn't be this hard. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you have to struggle to master something or understand something or do something kind of proves you must be an imposter. And again, you see a lot with graduate students who feel like I should have come out of the womb yeah. knowing how to do advanced calculus or how to write a dissertation. Why would you know how to write a dissertation? Mm-hmm. Why, why the hell would anybody know how to do a review of the literature? And that's <laughs> something that's also really important for you know us to keep in mind as mentors with graduate students that it's really easy to forget what we did not know when we Absolutely. started. 
And so it becomes like, what, you don't know how to write an abstract? Are you crazy? And so I'm always trying to police my own thoughts of trying to sit and remember right. what I didn't know when I was in their position so that I don't perpetuate those kinds right. of issues, that they should have just been born with that knowledge. Because right. I wasn't. I just forgot I that I wasn't. Absolutely. And by the way, while we're talking about graduate students, somebody said to me, I think it was Michigan State, she said, yeah, this is crazy. I have a PhD. I shouldn't feel like an imposter. I said, no, you feel like an imposter because you have a PhD. Because <laughs> <laughs> now people look at you a certain way. It's like, oh, you're smart. You know, the stakes are all higher. So anyway, that, so a lot of students, and sometimes universities, particularly on the undergraduate level, I see students in STEM kind of competing for how little time they have to study. Mm. You know, as if there's this kind of connection between effort and intelligence. Oh, I'm so smart. I don't have to even apply myself. Well, good for you. I do. It's hard for me. Right. But we, we judge ourselves. Mm. Then there's a soloist who thinks I have to do it all by myself. So they're not going to ask for help or mentoring or tutoring or coaching or advice. Mm -hmm. And, and, and they'll feel shame if they do have to get help. Uh, and then of course the superwoman, superman, and, and you do see in universities, super students who, you know, not only do they have to excel academically, but in their personal life, or especially you know, their parents or partners or community members and running for office and athletics, and, and they want to perform at this level in all of those different areas, you know, simultaneously. So they're all a huge setup. The bad news is that's a problem. We have to work on that. The good news is they're all solvable. That's a solution too, right there. I was just going to ask the next logical question because both of us are advising grad students. I'm a graduate director. And so in terms of taking, taking these principles then and directly taking them into my department mm -hmm. to mentor students, what's a best practice approach as mentors to help students who we know are dealing with imposter phenomenon, feeling out of sorts because of stereotypes or being a minority? How can we help them? What can we do? Right. Well, a little bit two different questions in terms of the stereotypes. So remind me if I don't come back to that. But just in terms of the experience of being a graduate student on a systemic level, I think every university, this should be part of a new student orientation. Mm -hmm. uh, it should be part of new faculty orientation. The only study I'm aware of where a higher percentage of men than women identified with imposter syndrome was a study conducted with professors which I think goes directly to some of the elements of academic culture that fuel self-doubt, not just in students, but also in, in faculty. So there, on a systemic level, you can do some things. You know, I get folks together in the beginning of the year and then just throw all their assumptions up on the board and then, you know, kind of blast through them. I mean, anything you can do to help people demystify the process, here's an abstract. You don't know how to start you know, I used to go look at other people's dissertations. How the hell do you do the conclusion? How do you do this? I, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like, go look and see how other people have handled these things. Um, name it. I mean, the most important thing, if you've had these feelings, is to talk about them, not in a confessional kind of way, mm. but in a very matter-of-fact, off-the-cuff, normalizing kind of way. It's like, you know, I don't know if you felt this way, but you know, I know I've, I've had these imposter moments. Have you heard of the imposter syndrome? You know, I had a huge imposter moment at that conference last, you know, when I got asked to, to speak or whatever it was to just name it. And it's a huge aha for them to realize that, you know, you've had these feelings as well. Sometimes you'll see it in their behaviors. You know, it's not just an interesting self-help topic. It manifests itself in uh, kind of flying under the radar. 
right? So the student who doesn't speak up or ask questions or doesn't challenge themselves because it's safer there, they can't be judged or failing. Certainly procrastination, which students are very good at, and I was when when I was supposed to be writing my dissertation, I had the cleanest house in Northampton, Massachusetts. <laughs> Um, and, you know, and never starting or finishing, that's another coping mechanism, over-preparing, overworking, self-sabotage. You might see different behaviors. It might be topic changing all the time. That may be just because they can't make up their mind, and it could be an avoidance kind of technique. So if you can kind of name it, but they, you need to give them an alternative. You know, they needed an, a reframe. You know, I, I see it as helping people become consciously aware of the conversation going on in their head when they're triggered with an imposter feeling and then stepping back and reframing it the way a non-imposter would. And when I say non-imposter, none of us are imposters, but there are people in the world, and I don't mean narcissistic jerks, but there are people in the world who... Just genuinely, they're humble people, but they just said, you know, I, I really, I've never had this feeling. Mm-hmm. And, and that's great. And really the only difference between them and us is in the situation where we feel like an imposter, they're thinking different thoughts. Mm-hmm. That's it. They're thinking differently about competence. They're thinking differently about failure, mistakes, and criticism. And they're thinking differently about fear. And so if we can understand how they think, and then and it doesn't happen overnight, but practice stepping back and doing that reframing, it can help give us perspective. And then I guess what advice would you have for say the graduate student or junior faculty member, if they're already dealing with imposter syndrome, the thought of admitting to someone higher up that you have these Uh issues going on is terrifying because it's like you're admitting a weakness and almost fulfilling the fact that you are an imposter. So what advice could you give to somebody that's dealing with these issues in trying to work through them? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is important to give voice to these feelings. I mean, small things that you could do on a campus is just have, have a poster on your door, have you know, signage around that reframes different things or names imposter syndrome and, you know, so that they don't have to do the confessional thing. It, it is important to talk about it, but I spoke at NASA this summer at the Goddard Space Center and a young interns come in, these engineering students from around the country who were there for the summer. And no, actually she was... A, graduate student, because she, she stood up and she said, all we do is talk about this as graduate students. There's like five people in her program. She said, we talk about it every day. We just talk about it and talk about it, but nothing changes. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, you know, you can't share your way out of imposter syndrome. Yeah. You know, I mean, I have a joke with people that I sit around with my friends sometimes and we talk about how fat we feel. <laughs> we never feel any thinner <laughs> at the end of that conversation, you know? <laughs> and actually the research shows that Adolescents who co-ruminate, who dwell on negative thoughts and feelings with their friends, actually experience higher levels of depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So talking is an important first step, but there are people who spend you know, 20, 30 years just going over and over how incompetent they are. This time I'm gonna find out, this is the big one. No, I know I was okay last time, but you don't understand, this is the big one coming up. Mm-hmm. Just talk about it, but then really you need to start teaching, again, this concept of kind of reframing and let me be clear, this is not just like motivational happy talk. Uh, there's some research out of the University of Vienna recently that found that people who experience imposter feelings, polyclance has a scale where you can measure it, but and people have different degrees of it, right? I mean, some people, it's a mild case, other people are paralyzed. But they found that people who had high self-compassion in terms of how they spoke to themselves had lower imposter syndrome. Hmm. 
students who had very low self-compassion, who were always judging themselves, beating themselves up, I'm so stupid, I'm such an idiot, they had much higher levels of imposter syndrome, which makes perfect sense. So the difference between walking into a prestigious you know, program or university or, and saying, oh my God, everyone here is brilliant, mm. versus saying, oh my God, everyone here is brilliant. This is wonderful, I'm gonna learn so much. Mm. What's the difference between saying, oh my God, I have no idea what I'm doing, versus saying, you know, I've never done this before, it's kind of scary and nerve wracking, but you know, I can figure it out, you know, I'll ask for help, I'll give it a try, I'll <laughs> see how it goes. It's just, it's, we have to think of it differently, and if, if I can, there's something in the introduction of my book that I wish I'd put it in the body of the book, I'm afraid people will miss it in the introduction, and I'm using this in my talks a lot more. I tell the story about Betty Rollins. She was an NBC News correspondent. Mm -hmm. And she wrote a column in the New York Times in the like 1980, maybe something around there, late 70s. It was called Chronic Self-Doubt, Why Does It Afflict So Many Women? And she talked about having that I'm in over my head and they're going to find out feeling throughout her whole professional career in broadcasting. So she said to a producer who, you know, by the way, was as competent as he thought he was, she wanted to know, like, do other people feel this way too? So she's like, you know, Bob, you know, when you're working on a big project, do you ever worry it's going to blow up? He's like, yeah, sometimes, you know. Well, if you did blame your, you know, if it did blow up, would you blame yourself? He's like, no, <laughs> sounding very sure. She's like, well, why not? He said, well, aren't I entitled to make a mistake once in a while? And when I say that in a room, there's always a gasp, which I get, because when I read that, I was a graduate student at the time. I remember reading that line like over and over and over, because that was like new information to me. And when you think about it, if you knew you were entitled to have an off day, to not understand, to raise your hand and ask a question, to um, you know struggle to master something or ask for help, there would be nothing to feel like an imposter about. Mm -hmm. When I read that, I was reminded by a great couples therapist we had several years ago. Uh, my wife and I have triplets, and so we struggled with lots and lots of stress, frustration, yeah. who has the harder job. And ironically, this isn't quite relevant to the story, but it's it, it was just a happy coincidence that our therapist also had triplets. So she was not impressed by our plight. And <laughs> the advice, yeah, the advice or the, the suggestion she had for us and our complaining about each other and ourselves was to remind ourselves and each other that we're human. And I think the the data said that on average humans make, unless they're really, really careless and, and not really trying too hard, they make two to three mistakes a day. Yeah. And so forgive yourself for yeah. those few slips that you have. And I think in our case, both being angry at yourself and then projecting that anger out on others as well. Absolutely. That story reminded me of that. You know, and I think it's a really great story, uh, Chris. And it's not about being like, okay, with failure. I mean, we're human. We're going to be disappointed. The bigger the letdown or we don't get the job or the grant, the more crushing it is. So we can be disappointed, but not ashamed. Mm -hmm. That's the big difference. You know, uh, if you think of athletes, you know, they're crying in their towel on the sidelines if they lose the, you know, the big game. Mm -hmm. But they don't hang up their uniform and call it quits. They practice. They watch the game tape. They'll say, we'll get them next time, as long as they did their best. So I have, I think, one final question. And this is one that we, we said we could cross off, but we have time for it. And I'm very curious. This okay. is 
talking about giving a voice to imposter syndrome, but also being kinder to yourself mm -hmm. as being a big part of it. But that can be tough for women and people of color when your institutions pay you less. Yeah. And, uh, your students rate you less. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And so how can we start to tackle these issues or, you know, how it almost feels impossible to me to not feel like an imposter if I'm getting paid less than the person next to me who's either equally or less qualified than me. Yeah. Um, how can we even start to go about that? Right. And especially all the unconscious bias around evaluations and, you know, all those kind of, you know, microaggressions and so on. Uh, and those are, you know, very real. And that's kind of the external reality that we need to take into account. So knowing it, is important because we can make it less about us. Mm -hmm. I want people to step back. That's why I do spend time in my talks talking about here's all the different sources of imposter feelings so that when you have a normal imposter moment, you can kind of look around and go, well, why wouldn't I feel this way yeah. given the situation that I'm in? And I don't have a perfect, I don't have perfect advice on this, but what I tend to tell people and I'm often approached by especially women of color after a talk who say I'm stressed out, I'm the only woman of color in my, or the person I usually in my lab or my whatever it might be. And, you know, I feel like people make these assumptions and they may be, or they may not be. We don't, unless they're really kind of overt, we don't know what people are thinking, but it can get in our head, you know, so often, especially students, people suggest, oh, you're here because of affirmative action. Mm. And that, that seed gets planted. And then you really feel like you have to prove yourself even more. And guess what? You probably do, unfortunately. The only thing that I can say to them is that none of us can control what anyone else thinks about us. We can only control our response. Mm -hmm. So if you look at somebody who you admire, whether it's in your field or, you know, on a national level, then if you kind of look at them, they've had all kinds of stuff, assumptions made about them. And, mm -hmm. and, but to kind of just... To look at people who do move elegantly through their life. Yeah, there's crap there. There's things people or assumptions they're making, but I'm just going to keep going on my path. And that's all you can do, you know, and then fight the good fight to get paid better. But in terms of people's evaluations, that's tough. Yeah, right. So if I can sum it up, talk about it. Yeah. Be kind to yourself. <laughs> Recognize the external Kara. environment that's going around. And maybe don't compare yourself to others because there are always very different circumstances. Chris. Yeah, and reframe. Just keep reframing. Mm. Especially, you know, criticism. I spend a lot more time in my talks on that these days because people who feel like imposters are wounded by even constructive criticism. Mm. You know, it just like crushes our soul. So you have 30 students and you get, you know, 29 outstanding evaluations and one student says, you suck, don't quit your day job, I hate you, right? And, and who do you believe, right? Because the other I can't people, read them anymore because I... The, you just focus on the back. That one from 10 years ago still sticks with me. <laughs> you know, we're giving them, A, so much power, but also, you know, it's kind of like the Olympics, you know, the, show, the high score, the low score, you know, that kind of thing. But I also think that we need to think like non-imposters around criticism. And some people are just jokes, you know, and some people aren't kind with their criticism, you know. But non-imposters see it as a gift. They seek out information to constantly get better. Mm. I've paid ridiculous amounts of money in my life to work with business coaches or people in the speaking industry or whatever it might be to be the best that I can be. And I'm not paying them to tell me I'm great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm saying like, you know, what do I need to work on? You know, how can I get better? So I'm like seeking it out. 
Mm -hmm. uh, quick story, when I spoke at NASA recently, I was saying um, the same thing, but around performance evaluations, right? Your boss says four things you did well, and one thing you need to work on, and we're like, you know, all we can obsess about is the one thing. So she was driving me over to this building afterwards, and she said, you know, that's exactly what happened to me. Uh, she, and good for her, she said to her boss, what could I improve on? Is there a place I could work on? I thought, that's good. You really need to be asked that question. She said, yeah, but then he criticized me and I was devastated for weeks. I said, would you mind if I asked what the criticism was? And she said, yes. He told me in my last project, I could have delegated more. <laughs> that was not criticism. That was information. He sees you operating on a higher level. Mm -hmm. you know? So we really, I think this is a, a core issue for a lot of people. And let me say, we're human. We're going to have that instinctive, defensive reaction. So don't worry if you have that, but just quickly say, okay, this is good information that I need. I mean, it's bad information. Not all feedback is valid. But if, it, if it's helpful, say, thank you so much. Even if they say, you're great, you want to say, thank you so much. What's one thing I could have done even better? The reframing of constructive criticism, that's a hard thing to do. That's a thing you have to well, train yourself to do. Graduate students have to because, you know, you know what happens. People write in the margins of your, whether your proposal, whatever, and all they comment on is the problems. Mm -hmm. And everybody wants some positive stuff, but that's like the culture of the organization. So we have to get used to that. I've heard faculty say as a, they were like devastated as a graduate student, but now they find themselves doing the exact same thing as they're reviewing grants. They're only yep. focusing on the problems. I start with, okay, what do we like? So they don't get rid of it. Yeah. And then how can we help them improve? Not just criticize it. The yeah. irony is what one person likes is different than another person likes and it all gets changed anyway. But the fact that a few people like some things mm -hmm. make it easier to hear how it can be approved. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, perhaps on that note, Valerie, if people want to book you for a workshop or speaking event, how can they get a hold of you? What's the contact information? It is pretty easy because it's impostersyndrome.com. Very easy. We will also put it in our show notes, but just okay. in case. Um, are you active on Twitter or any other form of social media that you interact with the public? Yeah, I do a little Twitter here and there, but I can't say I'm, uh, I'm all over Twitter. But I can say I just found you, so you're, it's your name, Valerie Young. So Yes, Valerie Young. Thank you. I see I didn't even, I forgot to even say that part. Dr. Valerie Young is my Facebook page, but I can't say that I'm majorly doing the, the social media thing. That's fine. That's fine. No Chris, worries. how can people find you? I am active on Twitter occasionally in spurts when I'm feeling resilient. Today, I had several tweets at Chris underscore L-Y. And you tweeted at me multiple times in that spurt, at Kara Akabak. We've been a Sausage of Science, and this is the Hackademics series for us, for the Human Biology Association. Thank you to Caroline Owens for making us sound good, and thank you all. Uh, and please like us, rate us, share us with everyone. Make your family members listen to us. Uh, and Valerie, thank you so, so much for giving us some time today to talk about this. This was fun. We'll have a beer someday. Oh, I look great. forward to that. We'll hope you do it. <laughs> All, right, All right. Take care. Take care. All right, thank you. Bye. Bye.